Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. And as we launch the new series, it would be really great if you could head to the Apple Podcasts app or the website and leave a rating and review. Now, I know tons of podcasts ask for this, but it really does help with getting the podcast discovered by more people faster. Thank you. So it's series three. And for my first guest, I thought it'd be great to kick off with a best-selling author and speaker and someone who's recognised as one of the world's foremost figures in leadership, team culture and performance, Alistair McCaw. It's like trying to become a more positive person. You know, what's the first step in becoming a more positive person is catch yourself being negative. There needs to be an impact to difficult conversations. There needs to be, the person needs to walk away feeling that things need to change. In five years' time, I hope I look back at this time and go, gosh, I didn't know that much, did I? For over 25 years, Alistair has worked with some of the most successful people, teams, colleges and organisations in the world. Now, we first met when we were both presenting at a conference for Paris Saint-Germain Football Club. We struck up a conversation and we have continued to swap notes ever since. We've used his most recent book, Lead With Purpose, make an impact as the framework for this discussion. I don't generally do that, but because he's given us 44 different stop-off points to consider what impacts on our leadership and performance environment, it's a really good way to prop up our conversation, managing your energy and burnout, how you deal with the tough conversations, routines, and the idea of count back, as well as many other stories and tools. Now, I was late getting on the call to Alistair in California as my Wi-Fi was playing up, so it seemed pretty apt to start the chat around what he thought about timings. If we look at time, and this is a lesson I remember from primary school, from elementary school, a teacher saying that time is about respect. And it's okay if, if you're late, just try and let the other person know. And obviously, Back 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we didn't have cell phones and, and, and it was easy just to message somebody. But, you know, even if I'm running five minutes late for a meeting or 10 minutes, I'll, you know, I'll shoot a message and just tell that person, inform that person. And that's, I think it's the most important thing, you know, um, in, in terms of, of your personal standards. I think time management is massive and it is something I, I bring up in the book. And I brought it up in my, my first book, which funny enough, the very first page I ever wrote in my very first book six years ago now was about standards, is about setting your standards. You know, there's that quote to that phrase that goes, how you do, you know, how you do the small things is how you do everything. And something goes something like that. I think it's all those small little things that add up. You know, we talk about small details and so on and so forth. And, you know, you've been around some of the world's best teams and organizations as well and has seen those standards that maybe others don't see or just look by like you know it's no big deal being a few minutes late for a meeting or so or, or whatever but it is actually it is it's those small little things i see this quite a lot of some of the organizations i've worked with that the timings are not seen as important as some of the other areas of of what they're putting together but probably a little bit like you i immediately I might not be able to actually articulate it brilliantly, but I can see that how that how it can bleed into performance if somebody's late or a management meeting goes on for longer than it should do. Have you got any tools for coaches or teachers that might be struggling to get their players, their athletes aligned to put those sort of timings and that sort of rigor around discipline um, front and center because it actually links to performance? 
Yeah, well, they say, you know, if, if you're on time, you're late. And, and it gets back to, to Vince Lombardi's Lombardi time, which was he expected his players and, and staff to be at meetings 15 minutes before the time. And I've seen in successful organizations and teams, et cetera, use that where the players are already in the room, in the meeting room or at practice 10, 15 minutes before we know uh, Manchester United in, in you know, the, the glory years of the 90s and, and, and two, early 2000s. Obviously, they had Alex Ferguson was smart with regards to having a lot of leaders in the locker room. And Roy Keane was one of those who expected the players to be there at least at least 20 to 25 minutes beforehand, you know, just to get ready, get your equipment ready and so on and so forth. So answering your question, I think it's important that, that coaches, leaders explain the why behind it's important to be not on time, but but before time, that you're ready, that you're prepared. And we know that the best teams and organizations in the world are well, well prepared. And I think that's where time management comes in at the top of the list is that being there before time, you're going to get you're going to be better prepared. But I think it's important to explain the why than not just to say be on time, especially with today's generation as well. You know, they want to know why. Yeah, you you have a great quote from Alex Ferguson, I think, in this in the the section around high standards that uh, once you bid farewell to high standards and discipline, you say goodbye to success. It's a great quote. What about on the flip side for coaches that sometimes have this um, willful blindness around, it's okay to tell everybody to be on time, but if my meeting with the other coaches runs 10 or 20 minutes late and everyone has to wait a little bit longer to go to training, well, that's okay because that meeting was far more important. Is there any tools you can get or any perhaps thinking around those coaches understanding that they have to be even better at the standards? The most important quality of a leader is example. And it's something I saw in Stephen Gerrard, for example, when I was when I was up at, at Glasgow Rangers, just how he leads by example. Players are on or before time, observe them in meetings, observe them at lunch, etc. And and you know it's those again, we talk about those small details. But you know, look, sometimes uh, ben, as you know, meetings are going to run over time. I just think it's it's communication is key. You know, if if meetings are running over time a lot, then obviously that's that's an issue where you've got to stick to time. Of course, a meetings meetings is another subject we can go into, which which I discuss as well is is the importance of meetings. You know, when you say the word meeting to somebody, usually they're like, oh, not again, not another meeting, and especially that we're sitting with with uh, having a lot of Zoom and Microsoft meetings these days. The important thing is, is how those meetings are structured. They start on time. They finish on time. There's enough time for, for voices to be heard. So, you know, I think it's very, very important of how things are structured. But communication is key. Again, in the beginning of this conversation, you know, let others know that you, you're running a few minutes late. Don't just leave them hanging. Like I said, for me, from a very young age, being brought up in South Africa, we were brought up in, in, in a military-like school where you would be punished pretty harshly if if you were late. But those were good lessons for, for me later on in life. I'd like to dig dig into actually your the start of your journey because you talk about it on a few, a few different times around the book and whether it was uh, some of the work you did in South Africa with the cricket, but also how you had to change and adapt your leadership around how you were when you were growing up and exactly what you just explained and to be a little bit more curious and a bit more flexible. And we've got all of these all these things pop up in Alistair's book and you've also touched upon another 
lesson from from your book around growth mindedness, which I think we both share around being curious, making sure that we're constantly learning. It links in a bit to the open mindedness that you talked about. In fact, you had a great story around George Raveling, around open mindedness. Yeah, George George is is I think George must be 83 right now. He's he's one of my mentors. And this is something I, I discuss in the book as well, is that today we can be mentored by so many amazing people. In fact, I've never met George. So it's not, uh, you know, sometimes we, we believe we should be sitting across the table to a mentor, but, you know, my mentors are on Twitter. My mentors are on social media, people that I follow, like yourself, for, for example, and, but we've been fortunate to meet. But um, George Raveling is just someone that at 83 is still evolving. He still has a daily uh, Saturday newsletter that he sends out and he just shares great experiences. But you know, he just talks about the importance of evolving as uh, not just as a coach or a leader, but evolving as a person. You know, um, Nick Boliteri, the famous tennis coach who I've, I've been uh, really fortunate to, to work alongside and learn from. Nick is now 90, 91. He's still on the court coaching. He's still playing golf each week. He watches his, uh, his, his kids play sports. You know, these, these are just people I aspire to, and, and they're continually growing. In fact, just before I came onto this, onto this uh, call with you, I was reading a little bit about Rolf Ragnick, the, the new Manchester United coach. And to be honest, I don't know a lot about him. And they asked him uh, about, you know, what it takes to be a great leader. And that was one of the first things he said he mentioned is having a growth mindset, continually learning, continually adapting, continually uh, growing as, as a person. I don't know about you, but often at the start, maybe of our careers, for me as a, a teacher or a coach, there is that heightened sense of knowledge that almost as a young person, having just done all the academic stuff, you think, yeah, I, I literally, I know everything. <laughs> and, you, and you're in there at the start thinking, yeah, 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 this is a breeze. And all the older coaches, you think, well, they're a little bit stuck in their way. But as you go through, it is clear to me anyway, there's so much that you know that you don't know. And if I'm not, constantly learning and reading books all the time and reaching out and getting my network going as much as I can I, I am going to be standing still and struggling as a coach and and you've coached Olympic winning athletes world-class organizations but it's a mindset that you're net that will never leave you I, I guess absolutely you know I think two of the most important things we can be investing in right now are emotional intelligence ability to know ourselves better and the ability to know others better and the second one is generations, learning the generations that are coming coming through. I think those are the two areas that I've been investing most of my time in. And, and I, you know, I suggest this to, to other coaches and leaders is emotional intelligence and learning the generations that are coming through. It's coming very fast. You know, we're the alpha generation now. Millennials are now 41. So if you're thinking that millennials are, are young, young adults and teenagers, they're not. But I just want to get back to a point that you you asked, I think, two or three questions ago with regards my background uh, growing up. And it links to this as well in terms of how I had to change as a coach, change as a person was, you know, we're not indebted to coach or teach the way we were coached and taught because, and this is what I learned, uh, thankfully earlier than, than later was, if I continued to coach and teach the way I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be without a, I would be without a job. I wouldn't have clients. Like I said, I was brought up in a very military-like, autocratic leadership style, do as I say, raising voice, 
shouting, et cetera, et cetera. And I learned very quickly when I moved across the United States in 2007, 2008, that if I continued like that, regardless of my resume, who I've coached, what I've done, that I wouldn't um, be having much work if I continued to look at that. So I had to change. And it was quite a process. You know, you're almost changing your personality in a way as well. And I'm very, very glad I did change. But um, yeah, sometimes we can be stuck. And this, this applies to parenting as well. I'm not a parent, but, you know, you're not indebted to parent the way that you've been brought up, for example. So I think that's a crucial area that we need to understand. And, and for me, I'm glad I did it earlier in my career than, than later. Do you remember, was there a moment where you had that thought early on in the career that you needed to change? Because that does show great self-awareness, but was there anything that triggered it? Yeah, I, you know, again, you were just talking about in the early 20s, we thought we knew it all. And I was, I was that person. And when I look back at those, those years, I cringe at some of the things I said or did or thought it was right. But yes, there, there was a moment. I'd worked with the number one in the world in tennis. I'd worked with the number one in, in the world in squash. I had all these clients and I thought I was the, the, the bee's knees. And then things started to get quiet. My phone wasn't ringing anymore. And I couldn't quite understand it. And I was sitting at home and, you know, I, I, best time is actually the thoughts with yourself, not having the TV on or a phone near you or whatever. And I was just thinking, why am I not, why am I not busy? Why is my phone not ringing? You know, look what I've done. Look who I've coached. You know, that ego talking is, as you know, that Martin Bichette talks about in his book, Eagles. And I realized that it was my demeanor. I had a chat with a good friend as well, where, where you know, I said to him, just be honest. You know, he, he knew me from, from school days as well. And he said, yeah, just the way you're coming across to people is putting people off. And it was, it hit me between, be, between the eyes, uh, Ben. It was that, if you want to call come to Jesus moment <laughs> of, of realizing that I had to change. It was a process where I'd, I'd catch myself wanting to shout or, or raise my voice or, speak to speak down at someone for example where i'd have to realize no that's it was a process it's it's like trying to become a more positive person you know what's the first step in becoming a more positive person is catch yourself being negative and and start there that's how you become a more positive person and i think with changing my approach and my leadership style and coaching style it was catching myself with those thoughts first of all of what i wanted to say and replacing it with something something better in the book, you list all the various characteristics or values, behaviours, I suppose. And there's a whole lot of them. Each one of them resonates pretty strongly. And you have some really nice examples on all of them. Do they come quite naturally to you? Have you kind of built up a bank of thought process where you think, OK, like this really has to be there as in my menu of of being as good as I can be? I think, you know, if you were to ask any coach or leader, um, the qualities of a great leader or coach, you know, they would come up with, you know, different ones as well. But those those were the 44 that I felt were important. Now, obviously, trying to remember 44, I wouldn't be able, even though I wrote the book, I wouldn't be able to, to list these 44 uh, uh, off the top of my head for you right now. But, you know, out of those, and this may, might be one of your questions, but, you know, what is the most important one, which was all, almost impossible to, to say, but, you know, there's a chapter there on authenticity. And, you know, right now, Jurgen Klopp has proven his authenticness, and, and if that's a word, of how authentic he is. He's the same person that you see on TV than he is at home, etc. 
And I think authenticity in a leader is one of the, the, the key factors. And, you know, they say, just be yourself or be your best self, be your best authentic self. And I think that's a quality in, in, in leaders that I've seen is that when they're authentic, when they're their best selves, that's when they're at their, their best. Calmness, that's one of the, in the 44. But I'm working with a coach that, that had the opposite of that after one of the games recently. You know, he really exploded. It's not his normal go-to, but he was being authentic. It was how he felt. Putting some robustness around that one, for example, on calmness. Do you think there's always that, a place where you can go to the opposite of that as a coach? And, you know, it's, is that being authentic or is, is that being an effective communicator, which is another one of them? Is there a place for, if we can call it being more passionate, being more explosive? And yes, I feel there is. It does show authenticity. However, it's how that's brought across. You know, if you're making it personal, if you're uh, attacking a player in front of other players in, in, in the dressing room, for example, then that's a problem. But being passionate, exploding, if you want to say, can still be in a respectful manner. It's just showing how much you care and how much this is actually affecting you and and i think people can see that that authenticity is again as long as it's not you're not making it personal um you're not being rude you're not being disrespectful then i think there i think there is a place for it you could make it personal or at least it could if it was very if it was only a a momentary thing and it was done you know very irregularly if you have a really clear bond a connection with that athlete so that you know them really well they trust you really well and that Therefore, if you are picking at them in front of all their peer group, they know that actually it is for their benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, this this is filed under the tough conversations, the difficult conversations, which is which is another area I go into the book because it's one of the most challenging things for a leader to have is the tough and difficult conversations. I've never believed in berating a, an individual in front of a group, even if I have a good relationship with them. You know, Brendan Rogers, the, the, the Leicester City manager, who is someone I have great respect for. I think he's a fantastic leader. You know, he said that, you know, having the tough conversations or those, those moments that you just mentioned there, the better relationship you have with the individual, the easier it is to have those conversations and those, those talks. And, and they're necessary. They're absolutely necessary. But personally, uh, Ben, I would, I would steer away from you know, making it personal to, to someone in front of the group. I still feel you can get that message across alone. You know, I have what I call the PPTT before you go into a hard conversation or, or a difficult conversation. Is this the right person? Is this the right place? Is this the right time? And am I using the right tone of voice? So again, PPTT, the right person in the right place, the right setting at the right time. Is this the right time to have this conversation? and the right tone of voice, which is, which is massive as well. You know, this is, this is something that, you know, Phil Neville, uh, the, the former Manchester United player, he talks about in the book as well, in terms of when Sir Alex used to call him into the office or the players into the office to tell them that they'd been dropped from the team for the following week. He did it in a way that, that he got to the point because you knew bad news was coming. And we all know when bad news is coming, you, you have that sense. And, you almost just want to, you know, cut the fluff, so to say, and, and just get to the point instead of uh, saying all these nice things and nice things, but you're just standing there waiting for the bad news. And, you know, again, there's a way to give bad news in terms of that, you know, being pleasant, but there needs to be an impact to difficult conversations. There needs to be 
the person needs to walk away feeling that things need to change instead of you trying to sugarcoat it in the end, you know, but giving them a pat on the back, for example, it's, it's almost like being the parent and, and disciplining your child. And then afterwards, you know, apologizing for it or, or buying them some candy or taking them to McDonald's. It takes the effect away from the, the message that you were trying to get across. It's something I wanted to ask you as well as how you deal with the difficult conversations, the tough conversations. How do you approach those? The number one thing for me is I, I don't I don't sit on them. So I will I will make sure that that if it's a difficult conversation, I'm going to have it straight away and I won't have it on WhatsApp because that's a very dangerous territory to start to be or any any written word, really. But I, I mentioned WhatsApp because WhatsApp groups seems to be um, very commonplace around professional teams, but it, everything can get misread. And so I'll I'll go straight to it and and be open and again, employ something that you've also talked about in one of the lessons that you've put in around listening, that when you're going to talk to, talk to them, you're also going to probably only talk 20% and listen 80% once you've had that um, start point, which is you've got straight to the point of whatever you need to get to and then allow that, allow the answer to kind of unravel and breathe a little bit. So I don't know when I be, I became better at, at having these harder conversations. And I would say, again, there's a kind of, cascade so I think I always found it easier to have the harder conversations with the athletes I think sometimes with my staff or my if I'm up managing my CEO I found it a little bit harder to have the the more authentic conversations with them and it might be because of trust it might be because I didn't know them as well Um, and so that's definitely something I'm still working on is especially like in the in the work that we'll often do where I'm dropped into an organization or you want to give some authentic feedback You've got to give it to sometimes the top man and sometimes it might not be what they want to hear. And if you're not careful and I've seen it happen, you know, you, you can you can again sugarcoat stuff so you actually don't get the impact that you want to. And, you know, as so, so that's something I definitely still have to work in. I think with athletes, I find it very straightforward now as far as starting the conversation, not that it necessarily results in a very straightforward outcome, because, you know, once you open the box and around making sure that you, you want to face up to these difficult conversations then it's also gonna you've got you've got to face up to the fact a bit like you mentioned graham henry um with i think it was umaga yeah it was tana umaga yeah where where they had a good enough relationship where when the open question was how do you think your pre-match talks are and graham was like well they're all right um they're pretty good and and tana said i think maybe you shouldn't do them anymore uh, <laughs> A lot of coaches at that point would either would either um, just think he was having a laugh or suddenly get very, well, the ego comes out and all sorts of things come out and you're going to get very defensive and shows Graham Henry's attitude that he, he took it on the chin. And so, again, you know, you've got to make sure that you're willing to accept all that stuff that's coming to you. And I think that's part of the feedback process that you've got in the book. You've got a list of different things that, that you can do. And I think the last one was smile and say thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not easy, of course, but it's important to finish off a, a tough conversation with thanks. Thanks for coming through or thanks for listening. And, and if there's any way I can help, for example, so, you know, you can suggest something like that. But I think it's important that when you go into tough or difficult conversations, Ben, that you have the, the desired outcome you want from it, uh, of, of what you want from that. You know, before Oprah Winfrey goes into any meeting, that's the first question she says is what what is our desired outcome what what do we want from this this meeting first of all 
So it's almost like, you know, starting with the, with the end in mind of what do we want from this? And also tailoring your approach to, to the person, you know, as you just mentioned there, you would adapt your approach to the players differently than you would to uh, hierarchy, for example, or the board. Um, so I think, I think that's important as well as you define those things. Alistair, we, we've skipped around a lot and I think that's just the nature of the amount of information and conversation stop-off points we could have on all sorts of different things. But what would you class yourself as right now? You know what your purpose is to serve. What would you class yourself at now? And what's your previous lives? Where have you been in your previous lives as well? And how did you get to this point? That's a great question. I think um, if I look at my books, for example, it's almost a story of my life of evolving, of in the previous years, being a coach, being being more one-on-one with, with clients and athletes, for example, personal training, management, coaching, and then moving into, into team culture, moving into leadership. And that's how, in a way, my, my books have evolved, of, of how I've evolved. And I read something very interesting. I don't know if it was on Twitter or, or something the other day, Ben, was somebody said, to learn a subject, write about it. And it's pretty much the way I've been learning how to become a better leader and, and team culture is, is writing about it, writing down what I'm learning on a daily basis. And that's basically how I've been able to, to write a book or, or write um, a few books is I'm actually learning about the subject. I'm never an expert. And it's something I never, never want to be categorized as an expert in this or an expert in that. No, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm continually learning. And I always like to say that in five years time, I hope I look back at this time and go, gosh, I didn't know that much, did I? And for me, you know, if, if we ask ourselves this question right now, yourself and, and, and our listeners, is are you the same person you were five years ago? And I hope that answer is no, because that means you're growing, you're learning. You know, we just, you, you spoke about George Raveling, who's, who's 83, who's, who's not the same person he was at, at 79, for example, or 78. And, and that's why I aspire to be is continually learning, growing and looking back in five years time and going, gosh, I'm glad I'm, I'm not that person anymore. That can sometimes lead to burnout amongst coaches and management where they are constantly on the move and on the go. And that's something you talk about as well, being aware of and seeing those signs. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't say I'm the perfect example of that. Um, I've always had a very, very high work ethic from, from a young age and Sometimes it has cost me my health in, in previous years. You know, I love what I do. This is for me, if I had all the money in the world or I didn't, I'd still do what I do. I absolutely love what I do. You know, I work from home as well. My office, my office is in my house and I could easily spend, I know it's very unhealthy, but 16 hours just reading, learning, writing, uh, watching video, uh, listening to, to other coaches, leaders, etc. So sometimes I, I've had to learn how to step back a bit, get out of the house, uh, go for a run, go to the gym. But then again, then I'll find myself listening to a podcast, probably one of your podcasts in the gym, learning again. But I, I absolutely love it. You know, so we can talk about balance as well. And, and I've always believed that where there's priorities, there'll be imbalances. You know, when, when you're trying to achieve something or, or strive for something, there's going to be imbalances from that. But I just want to go back to, to a story that, you know, you were talking about adapting and, and we we're talking about great coaches is a conversation I had with um, the great basketball coach, Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski of Duke University. 
Um, a little bit about him, 42 years as, as head coach. That's 42 seasons at Duke University. He was offered the LA Lakers job, which he turned down for $37 million. So he must be doing okay at, at, at Duke. But that's something that struck me about Coach K. When I was only supposed to have a 15-minute meeting with him, I was up consulting at Duke University. This, I think, was in 2019. Again, lose track of the years. And I sat down in his office and surrounded by photos of Kobe Bryant because he, he, he coached two gold medal winning teams as well with Kobe Bryant and LeBron and Dwayne Wade. And I was only supposed to have 15 minutes with him, but it went on for an hour. And he asked me more questions than I asked him. And it absolutely blew me away where I was thinking, you know, what, what can I teach Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski? But that was just very, very impressive that someone that has achieved so much has so much experience. He's 72 now. He's in incredible shape. Um, just that he was asking me questions and it just shows you uh, the quality of some of these top leaders and coaches is that they ask a lot of questions. They're very inquisitive. They want to know, you know, we know Pep Guardiola as well. He learned and, and Eddie Jones, for example, they're learning and, and you as well. I mean, you're learning from different sports and different sectors and different fields and, and you're very curious as to why that works and why that doesn't work. You know, I, a few years ago, I looked into the Bolshoi Ballet Academy of why it's been such a successful ballet academy over so many, uh, so many years. And it comes down to the same thing. Running an organization, a company, a team, a ballet uh, a company is getting back to standards uh, of very, very high standards. But, um, you know, just learning from as many things as possible uh, i mean it's just it's endless it is and coach k is um, i mean the fact that you managed to sit down with him is awesome erwin valencia who who we've had on the pod who works at the new york knicks he's also worked um he's worked with coach k and he, he again he eulogizes about him he has this almost this spiritual effect on people i think and one of the one of the little asides with him that i thought was i was quite curious about was i think when a uh, player looks to be enrolled in the Duke basketball program. He'll take him out for dinner with his family, Coach K and his family. And that got my mind going, OK, what are the benefits for that? How, and some of it was to get a balanced view, to get another view from, a, from something else. But then I also thought, leading into one of the other areas, which is committed, being committed. As we both know, you can end up walking out of the house very early, coming back very late, in and out of hotels and away a lot and totally committed to everything you've got and for your people around you they can feel like you are operating a little bit as an island if you're not careful so I wondered whether in in that respect the fact that his family were meeting another player and it gave him another they gave them another connection another touch point when they did come to training or they did come to to games that they would be able to talk with that player on a, on a deeper level and almost felt that you know I've seen it with some some athletes like if the athlete's other halves or wives or husbands meet each other it just seems to relax them a little bit when then the whole group goes away somewhere that they feel like all right well they know who they're going away with it gives them a little bit more confidence that what they're doing is of value and the commitment bit doesn't become a, a, as big an issue because I think you gave some percentages it's around about 40 percent of top coaches will get that burnout which it's pretty hard to get back from when you get it, and when you when you do get it in the middle of the season, it's it's a hard one to drag yourself up from. Other than kind of taking some time out and and pressing a reset button, which is not always possible when Premier League's going on at the moment, can't suddenly go. Oh, 
you know, I know we've got a tough game against Liverpool, but I really do need to have a long bath and some candles. And... <laughs> I think that's why it's so important that you surround yourself with the right people. And this is what great leaders have. You know, you, we just, you just mentioned the word Liverpool there with, and Jurgen Klopp is that a massive part of Jurgen's success is the people he surrounds himself with and the, the voices that he hears. You know, he has Pep Linders and he has uh, great people around him. Steven Gerrard, uh, you know, he has... Michael Beale, Jordan Milsom, uh, Gary McAllister. And, you, you know, you'll find, especially in, in football, they, they take the same team with them. And, and I'm sure it happens in rugby as well, where you take your, your trusted people with you to, to the next team. And that's, you know, that's what great leaders do. They surround themselves with, with other great leaders. And they're not afraid to hear the truth of, you know, I, you know, I don't think that was a good idea or, or, or how you went about that wasn't good. And you need that in your ear. You definitely need those people. And getting back to Coach K there, we all hear about having a family and a team, for example. And sometimes it can become a little bit overused or a buzzword like love your players, love your team. What does that really mean? Well, if you look at Coach K, he genuinely loves his players like they are family. And that's why before they recruit a player, you know, as you just mentioned, they take them out to dinner, they come around to their house, for example, and it's a family decision. It's not just, you know, Mike's decision. I like that because, you know, the recruitment has gone through the roof now with all the data analytics and they'll do personality profiling, all that sort of stuff. But it's hard to beat going and doing something like that to actually understand someone's purpose, their why, and whether they'd be a right fit for the personalities and characters they've got to work alongside with. If you look, for example, at, at Jurgen Klopp's team and how they've built it up over the four years is a massive thing is chemistry. Right now, pretty much 99% of the players would, uh, in the world would love to play at Liverpool. Maybe I'm exaggerating there a little bit, but you know they are one of the best teams in the world at the moment and Manchester City as well, of course. But a big part of being part of a Jurgen Klopp team is a question you ask himself, will this player... Uh, fit in uh, with with my players you know will they collaborate well will there be chemistry I think it's a massive thing for him is that the players get along because we know in great teams the players and, and everybody gets along and you can see that in in the Liverpool team where the players genuinely enjoy being around each other it's something that uh, I also wrote about in the book about Belsa at, at Leeds is you know the core group of players he had bef- uh, in the championship just the year before they got promoted you know, something that blew me away was, you know, here these guys have had a whole, this is when they got promoted, actually. Um, they've had a whole season together, probably spent nine months of, of the whole year together. And I was in Ibiza in Spain, and they were staying at the same hotel as me. And this was about three or four days after the, the season. Now you'd think, and, and they were all get along and having fun. And and I was just thinking to myself, like, surely after nine months, you wouldn't want to see those faces. Yeah, I, I mean, I, working nine months in an office, I don't want to see my, my colleagues. I just want to get away. And these guys were, were and, and with their wives and their girlfriends were hanging out together after a season. And it just it struck me of like the chemistry of that team. Two things. Well, one, you brought back really bad memories because I'm a Brentford fan. And that year we didn't get promoted and we were... We were pushing hard and Leeds did a, a, a proper job on us. But um, thankfully, we're in. We're having these heady days at the moment. You're, you're a Brentford fan? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's another That's another great coach and leader that I've, I've been looking up a bit uh, is uh, Thomas Frank. Yeah, Thomas is great. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to have met him a few times to chat. He seems it. Yeah, he's curious. He's often looking at different ways to do things and, and 
the, this one of the strengths of Brentford is that he's not the only one. It's like literally the whole group. You know, he's got an assistant coach, Brian Reamer, who's who's an ex-teacher, who, who's always looking for different edges. Chris Haslam, who's head of performance there. He's constantly looking outside of the sport and to try to get some advantages, um, as well as, you know, the owner, Matt Benham, as well as Rasmus Ankerson, who's one of the sporting directors. They have one of the lowest budget. I think they have the lowest budget in, in the Premier League. And just the work that he's done is is incredible. Yeah. Thomas is a, is a great bloke. And it's really interesting that, you know, he only really got given the chance to be a Premiership manager because of the promotion with Brentford that if he had been just staying in the championship, a club wouldn't have reached out to him, which I don't know what that says really, because he's world-class in what he does. He, you know, he's, one of the things he said to me was he would like at the end of every day to have been able to spoke spoken to every player and every member of staff every day. That's kind of that question that, like you said, uh, we talked about the, you know, why the players still going out, spending time with the other players on holiday, wouldn't they be fed up with themselves? That's actually a lovely question to almost pose a team at the start of the season. If you are going to be with your other mates and your their families at the end of the season, having a holiday in Ibiza, how have you got to that point? Yeah, I, I think also remember somebody's saying before you employ somebody, would this be someone you'd like to sit next to for 10 hours on a flight? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a very good question. But that does then lead me into, you said that, you know, you've sometimes suffered that you, that your health has taken a taken a hit from working too hard working long hours and you you do have various things that you put your morning routines really important to you and also naps I wonder if you could explain those a little bit and perhaps just highlight the fact that you're not being unprofessional or uncommitted if you decide to have a, a nap in the in the in the middle of the day or do some mindfulness and and you know it's 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 20 minutes so it's it's not usually that long and i don't sleep either it's it's more just shutting down um, the brain because i i get up between 5 and and 6:30 in the morning so by the time i get to 1 2 o'clock i've been going 8 hours i get a little bit of a workout in the morning as well so and i i like to get my most productive work in the morning if i can say the the hard stuff the difficult stuff i like to get done in the morning that's when I'm, when i'm at my best but yes, I think one of the most important commodities is your energy. The energy as you can't give energy if you don't have energy. And I think it's very important as a coach, as a leader, as a parent, uh, regardless of what you do, is that you know you you take your energy very seriously. You find what works for you. And and for me, the proper amount of sleep, eight hours, having a good breakfast, getting my hard work and a lot of work done in the morning, for example getting a nap in the afternoon, usually between 1.30 and 2, that I can maximize the rest of my afternoon. You know, we, we've seen it all before, especially when I used to work in gyms and, and when I was a fitness trainer, personal trainer, the trainer's just looking starry-eyed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They're sitting, on, they're sitting on machines, equipment. Again, those small little things you see, or they're on their phone. And for me, my standard was I want to be the same person with the same quality of work at 5 p.m. in the afternoon than I am at, at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I found that that worked for me in terms of having a nap just in the middle there, shutting down, no phone, uh, no noise, just shutting down the brain. And, and it really has helped me maximize the full day. You know, you've got to find what works for you. But for me, energy is, is one of my most precious commodities. And I've got to maximize each day. I want to put my head on a successful day for me, Ben, is when I put my head on the pillow and know that I did everything I could today to the best of my ability. And I need energy to do that. So, you know, taking care of my health, 
I've always said there's there's no excuse not to get at least 20 minutes of exercise a day, regardless how busy you are. In fact, President Obama used to to shoot hoops and at the back of the White House at lunchtime with some of his staff. And and if the president of the United States has 20 minutes a day to to exercise, and I think we all have 20 minutes a day, again it's priorities. But if I look at the George Ravelings, the Nick Bolateris, these leaders and coaches that are well into their 80s and 90s now, we spoke about Coach K. They take care of themselves. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very valuable point. And Owen Eastwood, who's somebody else that we've had on the pod and has written an amazing book called Belonging, he also asks the question when he goes into organisations, what gives us energy and what takes away our energy? And again, that's a really nice headline question to start conversations off with with people because it starts to give you clarity on everything you do and, and, and asks that question. And if the energy's being sucked out by something you do, then it's probably not something that you want to be employing. I've got two small questions then just from... A, do, do you have an alarm that goes off or do you naturally get up? Naturally get up, yeah. You've always done that? Yeah, unless, <laughs> and, unless of course, I, I think that's just from the years and years of getting up as an athlete. Um, I used to ride at 4.30 in the morning uh, before the roads got busy when I was a, a professional athlete. So I think that's just, um, I wish I could sleep in sometimes. The sleep in for me is, is like 7, 7.30, where I almost feel guilty that I've lost half the day. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's just been just from a young age, you know. The other thing that you mentioned about wanting to get your most productive stuff done in the morning, I'm interested to see how you've found that out. Look, it just makes sense for me as well. I mean, maybe that gets back to the days of when, when I was training, you know, I'd get my, most of my training done in the morning instead of the afternoon. You've slept, you've recovered, you've had a good breakfast, you've, you've you know, hydrated, etc. And then I think your brain's at the most alert, to the, you know, look, we get people that are morning people. We get people that are evening people. For me, I'm not an evening person. I need to I need to shut down, uh, for, for example. But um, yeah, just for me, it worked in, in the mornings up until about two o'clock. That's not to say the rest of my afternoon goes downhill. That's just where I discovered that I needed to break. Uh, not, not, not necessarily a physical break, but just a mental break. You know, these days we have so much going going on and so much information. And our, we're looking at our mobile phones every every 10 minutes um i'll admit i'm a twitter uh, addict i just absolutely love the platform the the people i follow i think that's how i first heard about you as well a, a few years ago as well i love following your twitter and, and it's you know for me i just love learning off that that platform as well you're ahead of the curve here because there's some research recently that that says that, that exactly what you're saying which is in the mornings I mean, I used to do this in the mornings. I go, right, just get my admin out of the way, get that done so I can get onto the creative stuff later in the day. But actually you are, you know, your information processing and your ability to do the more creative stuff is there at the start. So don't waste all that amazing energy on the admin stuff, get the good stuff, creative stuff done. And then, you know, in the afternoon when you're a little bit more tired, you can do the stuff that doesn't require too much brain work and just, just a little bit of effort. So um, you're, you're, you're nailing that. You know, Ben, there, there's a, an, an interesting study done by um, a, a, car deal, a car dealership um, survey, and they found that people spent more money later in the afternoon, later in the day on cars, and it came down to fatigue in, in terms of why, why people spent more money on cars. So, for example, later in the afternoon, you've come maybe straight from work to go see a car where the salesperson was, could convince the customer easier to have 
metallic a metallic coat or the better the better leather seats or the better rims on the car and and the client would go yeah that sounds good yeah that's oh it's only an extra 400 pounds okay yeah that sounds good and it really was that when we're more fatigued we make poorer decisions so it was a very interesting study i don't know where i read it, it was a few years ago but uh, don't buy a car late in the afternoon people <laughs> but but we do play most of our sports events late in the afternoons so that does yeah. does make me think we've we've got to have that front and front and center uh, when we're when we're about to prepare a team for a three o'clock kickoff i guess any other little gems that you'd have around just before you know to, to improve your performance and i'm not talking from nutrition necessarily but anything else that you you do with your athletes just to give them a little bit more clarity on trying to be their best version on on the court the field or the pitch I think it's very important that, and most most athletes do have this, is that you have a game day uh, routine. For example, if games start at 12.30 or 3 or 7.45 in the evening, which are usually the, the standard um, football times, for example, just saying the premiership or the championship, is that you have a, a kind of a routine set out in terms of a count back. You know, I like to call it prepper readiness in terms of what you're doing half an hour before, what you're doing one hour before, what you're doing two hours before. You know, Michael Phelps was was a master at this, where he, you know, speaking to Bob Bowman, which would be a fantastic guest guest for you as, as well, Ben, on your podcast. You interviewed so many great coaches and leaders and, and athletes. Um, Bob is um, was was Michael's longtime time coach, and he spoke about Michael just being so detailed in terms of arriving exactly four hours before at the at the venue then three hours before he would eat the same meal two hours before he'd get into the pool he had a 45 minute session warm-up of of going through certain strokes then going into the ready room and and so on and so forth so yeah i think take a leaf from the most decorated olympian of all time is is have a routine for your day and have what i call a count back in terms of what you're doing before the start of competing i think that's a question i want to ask you um ben is because you've obviously worked with a lot of great teams, is some players have different routines. Some like to listen to music, maybe. Some don't. Some want to be left alone. Some want to eat two hours before. Some. How did you deal with that? The first thing is understanding what their requirements are. So that is going back to all the stuff we talked about earlier about building the trust and the knowledge base around someone so you know someone well and, and you're starting to understand how they like to, to run their day or their time going into a game it's you know at the start end at the start of it it will be how do you like to receive if you're even in the team you know do you want the team to be named in front of everyone do you want me to pull you to one side do you want me to have told you an hour before do is it is it if it's getting done the week before am i emailing you am i sending out a general message or that that's individual at that start point and then for the other things i think there'll be core stuff stuff that you've talked about you know around the hydration around sleep and around how you prepare in that kind of golden 30 45 minutes before you you run onto the pitch or in onto the court or whatever but everything around that then that individualization is down to having the good conversations with those athletes and to be quite robust around those conversations a sport like football I'm getting to understand more and more there are lots of things that they do because they've always done it and things that are being done particularly at half times the general thing that happens at most clubs around half time they'll come in they'll go to the loo they have a breather they might have, they'll sit down then for 15 minutes majority of it and then they'll run out into the onto the field and expect to suddenly be flying around and there's no the measures aren't there as much as they should be they a lot of a lot of changing rooms in football they'll disappear straight after the game 
and actually the best time to then go and do your some sort of contrast therapy or cooling techniques or whatever you want to do and is straight after the game they'll do it the following day because it's always been done like that you know and the book ending on on that isn't as perhaps strong as it is in other sports so there's an education piece as well i think around it but um individualization i think is great as long as there are also some core team things that you wrap around that that everybody has agreed to and connected to but i'm fascinated by all of that i just think there's always moments to get things better i wanted i wanted to ask you because there was a, i think there was a little debate about this last week is them wanting to extend halftime to to 20 minutes instead of 15 minutes i mean 15 minutes is, is also in rugby right yeah, it used to be 10. It's been extended last about, I don't know, five, six years ago to 15. You know, because they were saying that just 15 minutes to, you know, get the, the, you know, the team in and everybody settled. And like you said, go to the loo, get, some, get, get something to snack or hydrate, et cetera. It's just too short. It's too rushed. Would you, would you endorse 20 minutes or is that too long? You know, I think halftime gets in the way more than anything else sometimes, you know, and they're running decent amounts. You know, their meters per minute is is high in football, but they'll probably be covering in a half between four to five and a half, six K maybe. And high speed running will be a small proportion of that. So they're not coming in to a point where they have to have a, a big enough break to regenerate or anything else like that. So I think I think it's perhaps the commercial angle for all of that. But at the moment, from what I've seen, I, I think, you know, all sports, they can certainly use that time anyway a lot a lot better. And so, it, sometimes it does just get in the way. And, you know, we were talking about um, with another colleague of mine doing some workshops on momentum because I think that's also something that perhaps athletes and especially in team sports don't grasp as, as much, don't see it actually happening, either losing it or, or, or regaining it or continuing it. I think there's something in that that, we don't really talk much about either, but momentum's a big one for me that I think there could be an education piece around. Interesting. And in rugby, rugby sevens halftime is what? Two minutes. It used to be, it used to be a minute. Um, and that was too short because you, you couldn't one do minute. Any, yeah. You couldn't really do anything. So it's two now. <laughs> it's probably one of the most physical games there is. I mean, it's explosive. Yeah. And the high speed running percentages are through the roof for that game and then throw in getting smashed about a bit and, um, so, so it's it's actually one of those where people think in rugby sevens is quite meek and mild compared to its older brother fifteens. But the injury rates are far higher in sevens. Everyone's just travelling faster, fatigue builds quicker, and you can make substitutions, but it, it it doesn't really change. You know, the impact is is pretty constant throughout. So yeah, just the two minutes, and they, we did used to have seven minute games each way, and then the final ten minutes each way. And it's been standardised now, but I did quite like the longer game at the end. It really made them quite exciting, and uh, you know, there's an argument both ways for that. But yeah, sevens, you don't get, you know, it's it's another question. I, I I'd have for you half times as a coach. It's a question of really being very clear on what you want to do because if you suddenly got twenty minutes, I mean, I know some coaches that would be getting their laptop out and doing a PowerPoint. And would have had half a dozen analysts um, that would be quickly doing something to provide that information from the previous half. And those players are wondering what the hell's going on. I just want to get a cup of tea. And <laughs> what sort of, have you got any advice for coaches at half times? I think it's very important that you you obviously have a plan to to what it's going to look like. So maybe you're breaking it into three five minute periods of the first five minutes for the the player to to do their thing and. 
like you said, go to the loo, change whatever it may be, get their thoughts together, you know, because in most cases they're going to be coming in very, very emotional. Maybe they're down at halftime. There's a few upset players. So giving them a chance just to emotionally calm down, get their thoughts together, for example, before you can approach them. I mean, as a, as a coach and leader, a great tactic is, is the timing of when to give information, is the athlete ready to receive it? So when you're giving them a chance, first of all, to, to get their thoughts together is, is important. You know, not giving too much information. We know that, that over-information is one of the worst things as well in coaching, which a lot of coaches fall into the trap of, of trying to add one more thing and another thing and another thing. And, you know, the players have absolutely no idea running back onto the field what, what the plan was in the first place. So I think, you know, giving the player time, uh, letting them do whatever, and then having just before they go out, you're, you're a very short team talk or instruction or, or even letting the captain speak, whatever it may be. There's some, a lot of clarity in that. And often best lays plans get thrown out the window with a 45 minute goal that suddenly yeah. very organized half time turns into chaos. Um, so I find that really, and, and a lot of that is linked into culture and, um, as we're, you know, I could talk to you for a long, long time, Alistair, but um very wary of your time. And, and as we're kind of getting to the end of our conversation, I wanted to just touch upon buy-in. And, and you have a lovely quote by, I think it's Dallas Eakins. Yep. That's he the Mighty Ducks at Anaheim and the NHL? He is. That team culture is not bought, it's caught. And it's it's I, I love that because, you know, often new kits shiny things a lot of people will think that's culture i did i won't mention the sport but there was for uk sport i do walk the floors and different things for them and there was a an olympic sport when i asked them a question about what how good your culture is they told me they had just had um their gym painted and i thought okay there's a lot in that <laughs> straight away that we probably need to get into the weeds and, you know, you, you also mentioned the elements of buy-in and um, the different things around that that can help get everyone working as a culture together. Yeah, buy-in is one of those things where I, I think the word trust is, is the most important thing. You know, you're, you know before, before someone buys into the vision, they first have to buy into the leader and the person the leader is. You know, you'll want to work hard for someone that you like. It's, it always reminds me of that great TED talk by Rita Pearson. Uh, who unfortunately just just passed away a few years ago, where she said, kids don't learn from people they don't like. And we can we can put that in any way of people don't learn from people they don't like. So, you know, a buy-in involves you're buying into the person, not just the leader, not just the, the head coach, for example. Again, we go back to the example of Jurgen Klopp, but those players are playing for for Jurgen. Um, they they love him and and they have he has a buy in with with those players. So again, we can go back to relationships being important in a buy in, trust being massive as well. So yeah, it, you know you you can't achieve anything worthwhile or anything of credibility without having in a team environment without, without having a buy in from your people. And that's linked into well the influence and the nurturing relationships that that you talk about in the book. And there's another lovely quote from George Reveling, that if we want to stand out from the crowd, help someone. And that builds into every, I get, perhaps what, what you're saying here, Alistair, is all of these 44 in isolation, you know, do one of them to a world-class level, there's, you're not going to get success. But it's about, it's about putting them all in place and understanding the timings and, and the quantity at different, at different moments. Is that how you'd sum it up? 
I've, I've structured the book where, you know, there's some self-reflection questions at the end as well. You know, you can reflect on it alone or with your team of, of leaders, for example. So, yeah, um, easy to read. I think each chapter takes no more than five minutes. And that was the purpose of it is to get a message across. You know, maybe you're just it's on your desk in your office and you read for five, five minutes when you get into the office in the morning and you reflect on, on that that chapter. So that's that's basically how, you know, it suggests how it'd be best to read it. You know, it can be something that you read entirely and then you just have on your desk and, you know, you're thinking, you know what, I could, when you read up a little bit about vulnerability or standards or whatever it may be, you know, just bite-sized information. It's going to be in the offices of a, of a couple of different teams I work with, um, for sure. So Alistair's going to have a, a little spot in the corner um, because it is um, brilliant for exactly what you said there is to, to, again, start to be curious, start to drive further conversations. And we're all pretty busy. And sometimes you just forget about certain things and you, you, you need a you need a little nudge. And all your books have provided that for me, Alistair. I'm very, I'm very thankful that you're that you're you're a good friend and someone that I can bounce ideas around and and listen to and learn from. And I've really, you know, I could talk a lot more about a lot of different things, but I've loved having this conversation. So thank you very much. And thank you, Ben. And also thank you so much for contributing to uh, the uh, chapter on lead with consistency. Um, I just couldn't have thought of a better person than than have you contribute to that that chapter. But it's always a pleasure. Likewise, I could sit and chat here with you all afternoon, but um, I know that you're a pretty busy man yourself. So thank you so, so much for having me. Thanks again to Alistair McCaw. We threw a lot of thoughts and ideas around there and there is no way you can implement them all at the same time, which is reason in itself why you should have his latest book on your shelf so that you can refer back to it regularly. I'm sure we have all seen teams, companies, coaches or organisations use that technique of well, just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. That's the opposite of how I look at culture and performance. Anything you want to do has to go through a process in your head first. A tick list that is centred around that particular person, the place or the group you want to improve and a series of questions that accompany it. Will it make us better? Or as Oprah says, what is our desired outcome? Is its cost financially or in the time it's going to take you? outweighed by its impact and benefit. The story about the legendary basketball guru, Coach K, and how he goes about selecting new players is a great example of personalising the way you do things to the culture you have and want to protect and reinforce and strengthen. Alistair and I mentioned plenty of resources in this show and I'll reference and link all of them and more in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast and in the show description on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. As well as his books, you can also find out more about Alistair on his amazing podcast focusing on leadership, culture, and mindset, and on his social channels at Alistair McCaw. And as I said, it would be ace if you haven't left a review on Apple to do that. It really helps. And if you want to reach out to me, then go to benryan.co.uk and just hit the contact button and you can get through to me there. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening.